Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 15 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. This looks amazingly like Easter. (laughs) I chose that scripture. Beware of false prophets who come to you in big robes, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Some of you, maybe many of you, may be wondering, who is this guy? Is he a wolf in a robe? I'm actually a Yuma High School criminal. That was our, what do you call that? Your mascot, the Yuma High School criminals, Yuma Territorial Prison. We have a little guy running around the football field with a ball and chain. And people go, do they still do that? Yeah, they're proud of it. You have a right to know about me. I'm coming to be among you. You need to know about me, and I'm going to want to know about you, so this is a little, this is a testimony more than a sermon. I want you to know a little bit about my life, about the joy, and some about the pain, Uh, because I think what you have a right to expect from me is authenticity, and I'll make you one promise. You may not like everything I ever say to you or everything I ever do, but you won't have any questions about where I stand on something, and you won't have any questions about my authenticity. I'll be front and center in front of you, and I'll be who I am. Fair enough? Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, I'm going to be briefer than usual today. It was a warm, warm desert summer night. I had just graduated with honors from Harvard. That would be Arizona Western Junior College, the Harvard of Yuma, Arizona. (laughs) I had, along with my debate partner, won the state championship, uh, triumphing mercilessly and easily over the University of Arizona team. She went there. (laughs) Devils. I was impressed with myself. I had, you know, people strive to have a good self-image, young ladies. I looked in the mirror and said, you're brilliant. (laughs) But I wasn't so smart that I didn't have to work a summer job. So after graduating from Arizona Western College, I went off to Washington to visit with my Uncle Gail, my favorite uncle. He had a farm and he had a gas station. Uh, and he was a character. He's about five foot three, and I mean, he was a banny rooster and a half. And I planned one night, I was going to be with Uncle Gail the whole summer, milking cows in the morning, running the gas station, milking cows at night. And one night with my Uncle Given, who was not my favorite uncle. He's a fundamentalist Christian. You know what that is? He was a soul winner. He was out, and he was all about getting you right with Jesus. Well, I worked the summer for Uncle Gail, and then I went to visit my Uncle Given for one night, and he was going to take me to the airport the next morning. 
Well, what do you think happened that night? What do you think the topic of conversation was? Religion. And I'll tell you what, I brought the fullness of my brilliance to bear. <laughs> and that country bumpkin uncle of mine from West Virginia never stood a chance. He was trying to take me down the Roman road, which is the way fundamentalists uh, lead people to Christ. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, it wound up. It was a rocky road. Four-wheel drive required. But an amazing thing happened that night. At the age of 19, an agnostic leaning towards atheism became a Christian. Jerry Falwell would be proud of me maybe for a week. I felt the weight lift. I felt the euphoria. I had, and I still value it, a truly mystical experience. And on the plane back to Yuma the next day, I was reading the book of Luke, and I sensed a call to ministry at the age of 19 that's never left me. Now, I went back home, and for the next three or four years, went back to doing what I did best, drinking coors and chasing girls, but God got me in the end. Um, what I want to say is that's the grace of God. It's a grace so overpowering that it could use a broken down, impaired theology, which I flatly reject now, but to bring me to Christ. And it could use a battered, broken down, beaten up old guy like me and some of you to bring joy into the lives of people and into joy into your church. The grace of God is powerful. Flash forward 29 years to 1999. I'm at Andover Newton School of Religion finishing up a doctorate and I'm living out on the Cape. I'm in a meditation class and I'm meditating and I'm not exaggerating three to four hours a day some of it's walking meditation along the water. Uh, and suddenly I'm overwhelmed by this feeling of the deepest silence and peace that I've ever experienced. And there amid the sand and the wind and the sea and the sun, I sense a shimmering orb in my gut. And it's absolute peace. Absolute silence. And here's the fantastic, most amazing thing about it. It's cut from the exact same fabric as my fundamentalist experience of being born again. And folks, in 1999, I'm an all-out, flat-out liberal. And yet, that mystical piece was cut from the same cloth. Now, I don't know what that means to you. It's fascinating to me. I've never figured it out. But this much I do know. This is the grace of a smiling God. And you know, when I was won to the Lord by my fundamentalist uncle, that night I experienced a God not who was frowning, but a God who was smiling and inclusive. And I came to believe that night that behind all that is, is a benevolent energy, force, presence, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's what I think of God. But the grace of a smiling God, 
It's not a guarantee that life will be without pain, is it? Contrary to what you hear on TV, where if you just send in enough money, you're going to have a perfect life. And whatever you put your shoulder to, they're just not just going to flower you with blessings, right? No? What do you think? Do you believe that, television preachers? I hope not. No. Life can be hard. Forty-plus years ago, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I promised to follow without exception, to persevere despite temptation, failure, and even the tragic. Ten years after my conversion at the age of 29, my wife and I lost a son to SIDS, crib death. Jason was four months old. Let me tell you, we were in absolute despair. We had been in Washington, actually visiting that same uncle, the, the one who had led me to the Lord, uh, and we were driving back, you know, we went to shop. Uh, my aunt was watching Jason, and he just died. And we're driving back to the Bay Area where I had my little church the next day, and we were grieving horribly. But I heard a word from the Lord that said, Jason, it's okay. He's with me. Now, I'm not trying to tell you I didn't have anger or depression, and I drank a fair amount of scotch. But it was still grace, and it kept me in the ministry. Ten years after that, I lost that wife to divorce. I truly loved her. And in some ways, it was worse than losing Jason because I was forced to take the journey alone. I was ashamed. I was ashamed by my failure to hold my marriage together. I didn't believe I belonged in the ministry. But my theological mentor, systematic theologian Jim McClendon, now passed, invited me to his home. I was pastoring a church in Kansas. Invited me to his home in Kensington, California. And there, one morning, peering out upon the Pacific at daybreak, I sensed the call of God again. It was God saying, we're not at the end. And it kept me in the ministry. I did nine months of clinical pastoral education at a psych hospital. Wonderful experience for me. Uh, and during that time, I made my way into the United Church of Christ. I had finally found a theological home. It was God's grace. It kept me in the ministry. In 1999, I became the senior minister of one of our largest UCC churches. Big staff. Big paycheck, big challenge. I loved it. It went well. It went really well. And then along came September 11th, and then Iraq, and in both cases, my opposition to war. And things began to go a bit awry, and I found myself at some point ending up being the bug on the windshield. In 2006, I left. I was going to sell cars for the summer and go to law school. But a couple months later, I experienced a recall. Not the automotive kind. The grace of God showed up again. It kept me in the ministry. And so instead of going to law school, I undertook specialized training, Alvin Institute, Lombard Peace Center, Murray Bowen's work, Bohemian Therapy, uh, Family Systems. And I rapidly turned into transitional ministry specializing in highly conflicted churches. 
2011, I went back to Arizona, never planned to leave there because despite all the jokes about dry heat, I love Arizona, uh, to pastor the most lawyered up, conflicted congregation ever to be in the United Church of Christ. Well, I had a great staff. We did great work together. We were able to turn the church around. John Dorhauer was my conference minister there in the Southwest. And while I was dealing with his thorn in the flesh, he was becoming the general minister for our denomination. And when I was done at the particular church I'm talking about, he said, Don, I need you to come to South Central. We've got a lot of conflict. And that's how I became a conference minister. Now, I went there because they had high-level conflict in South Central Conference. The conflict is over. Uh, we still have structural challenges like every conference does. But it, the conflict part is done. And you may reasonably ask me, why is a conference minister coming back to the parish? Isn't that a step down? Not in my world. I don't think that. I think it's a step up. I miss preaching to folks I know well. I miss when you get to know me and I come out here and say, folks, you know I'm a patient man. And the better you know me, the more you'll know I ain't no patient man. <laughs> so pretty soon people are laughing. And you know, you know me and I'll come to know you and we'll enjoy that relationship. And I enjoy preaching to people who know me, both my virtues and my fables, foibles. But most of all, I miss the fellowship, the pulling together, the community with staff. And I miss the challenge of overcoming conflict through love and seeing life triumph over discord and death in a congregation. You know, the Apostle Paul had it right in Romans 8. God works in all things for good. Now, I'm sure you've heard this preached. It's not all things are good. Uh, 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 that doesn't work. God works in all things for good, even in divorce, even in a death of a child, even in conflict in a church. God works in all things for good. And you know, I've had a wonderful life, and I've had highs, and I've had lows, but I know after something catastrophic happens when I'm healing, because I imagine a tapestry across the wall that is my life, and when I'm healing or healed, I can't imagine it having been any different. And I think that's true for churches as well. Today I find myself a man blessed. All of my children are a source of pride. They all question authority. They all started at home. <laughs> home life, Marianne is my spouse and we have three dogs, Vizsla. Does anybody have a Vizsla? Well, they can run on all four walls and never touch the floor. And I'm a far better pastor than I am a Vizsla trainer, I can tell you that. It's never a dull moment. Uh, but in it all, there's a calling from God to serve a wonderful group of Christian folk. 
who are committed to constructing a just world. That's my reason for living. Now, I want to tell you a quick story uh, to close. This is, this, is a, this is the shortest message you'll ever hear from me. Normally 15 to 18 minutes. Honest. <laughs> You're exactly the kind of church person I like. Well, I got to tell you this. I had a big choir behind me one time, a bunch of orthopedic surgeons in it, and I said, choir, why did my mom tell me that beauty is only skin deep? And one of the orthopods said, because ugly cuts to the bone. <laughs> I love that. Sally and I lost Jason, and we weren't going to have any more kids, so I'd had gallant guy that I am. I'd had the plumbing disconnected. Well, after we lost him, you know, we wanted another child, so I had to put back together. And the child that was born is Donald Joseph Longbottom. He, he's a principal in Aurora. But Donald Joseph Longbottom and Irene, 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 his spouse from Spain, just had a child, their first child, my first biological. Uh, he, um, Lennon, John Lennon, not Peter Lennon, John Lennon James Longbottom was born... Uh, to my son, who would never have been but for the death of Jason. And he was born the night before Jason was born. And I don't know, is God in that? I think so. Uh, you know, nobody wants to lose a child. But I'm here to tell you that God is smiling. No matter what you've been through, God is smiling. Now, to get down under 18, maybe it wasn't that short, the grace of God. The journey since 1970 has been wonderful, horrible, meaningful, but in the end, unimaginable in 1970. It has been, I believe, a life lived not by my power, but the power of grace. That's not all of who I am, folks, but it's a big chunk. Um, God has called and equipped me for this particular kind of ministry. I've done it before. We can do it together here successfully. I hope you will stay for the questions afterwards and you ask me anything you want. God bless.